I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here and I'm joined in studio by nobody. Murray Kinsella and Owen Toulon took the heat off me earlier on this morning. Uh, they got together on Skype and had what sounded like a fairly comprehensive and enjoyable chat about Ireland's excellent victory over Scotland in their World Cup pool opener. This podcast is brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. And here it is. Well, Alan, thanks many for joining me. Uh, bumped into you obviously at the game last night, and I think we both really enjoyed it. How are you getting on in Japan so far? Nice to be over and getting stuck into it. Yeah, I'm, I'm out in Tokyo Bay, which is a lovely part of Tokyo, so it's been uh, a great first weekend. I think uh, the Rugby World Cup is alive and well after after some incredible games. I think we were treated to probably the best opening weekend of, of a Rugby World Cup, to be honest. So, yeah, it's been enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. Fair play to, to World Rugby. They scheduled it pretty nicely and definitely got a bit of momentum behind it. Even just like on the, being on the ground here and seeing the Japanese people engage with it, it's been absolutely brilliant. Really good from a, an Irish point of view, obviously, as well. Let, let's start there because that was a, a pretty dominant opening performance from Ireland. What was your overall impression of, of how the game went? And I guess were you surprised by how it went? Yeah, I, I don't even think the most optimistic of Irish supporters could could have expected a winning margin as it was. I think it was, it was the biggest winning margin over Scotland since uh, the last day of that 2015 Six Nations. Um, so so to pull off such a comprehensive win in a massive pool game, I think was, was hugely impressive. And I don't think Joe Schmidt or, or the coaching staff could be happier how it went. Um, obviously, I think, I think Gregor Townsend and Scotland will be disappointed how his team started the game. And and kind of allowed Ireland easy easy access into the game and uh, probably contributed to their own downfall, to be honest. Mm. It was hard to figure out exactly what they were trying to do. Like, put, putting your finger on what the actual game plan was is difficult. Even watching it back, there's yeah. there's lots of different elements. There didn't seem to be a concentrated idea, whereas Ireland, like, it really looked like they knew exactly what their core kind of key performance index were in this game, and, and they absolutely nailed those. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It, it really didn't seem like Scotland had a plan to deconstruct the game, which I think is what a lot of us expected them to do, was to try and play a tempo when the conditions allowed and make it a kind of open, free-flowing game. And, and I even think if you look at Scotland's restart strategy earlier on, it was long and deep to Ireland's right-hand side. And, and for, for a right-footed nine, as good as Conor Murray, that would be his preferred side to exit from. So even from the get-go, I, I think their restart strategy and kind of allowing Ireland just exit efficiently from as they do so well from their own 22, I think got Ireland off to the perfect start. Yeah, they did that really well. Conor Murray's kicking really was exceptional. Some of those uh, exits that he actually put into touch were just unbelievable. There was one, I think, where they played the ball back into the 22, they set up the rook and he smashes it all the way in to up to the 10-metre line in Scotland's half nearly. Ex- exceptional stuff. And then he was kind of keeping in play at other times and Ireland probably backing themselves to come out the better of those kind of high-tempo long passes, which you don't really expect them to do. Ireland kicked, what, 39 times in play in total, a huge number. What did you see from that side of the game? Because it was obviously a really dominant uh, aspect of it. 
Yeah, and I, I think Conor Murray, I think he might have boxed kick 14 times in the game. And when he got such a world-class nine, that is, is probably the best box kick in the world. Would be, it would be foolish not to use him. But I think we talked about in the kind of preview to the World Cup that there would be a little bit of variation to Ireland's kicking game, hopefully, as the competition developed. And it, I thought you saw it off that left-hand scrum when Conor Murray played straight to Stockdale. Really, really smart play with uh, Seymour sitting quite deep. Um which brought Seymour up. And then Stockdale, I think he's patented that left foot chip and chase at this stage um, to regather. I think I thought that brought another little to them uh, kind of um, aspect to Ireland's kicking game, which was good. And I thought Cardi, you saw that little grubber. Obviously, the game was won at that stage with that grubber through to Farrell was exceptionally good. And even Lamore, probably maybe ill-advised at times in the first half, those chips over the top uh, into midfield just giving Scotland uh, different pictures to look at. But I, th- I thought Scotland's kicking game on, on the kind of other side of the coin was was puzzling, to be honest. I, I thought even off that, mm-hmm. their first line, that first line out of the game that gets overthrown, that second phase, um, Russell has an ideal opportunity to put a high contestable on Lamore and kind of, I guess, test out the inexperienced fullback, but kicks it long and deep and, and doesn't even test Lamore off that first kick. And I, I thought that was surprising. And then even some of Laidlaw's kicking um, in the lead up to that first try when Conor Murray's done exceptionally well to kind of break down the shore side off that mall and kick over the top. Scotland are in retreat mode. have gone all the way to their five meter line and, and you just know from that position, you need to kick the ball out. Your team have just retreated 40 meters. A lot of players have been resourced to the breakdown. And for Laidlaw not to find touch there, um, straight into, um, was it Conway's hands or Lamore's hands? Conway, yeah. Yeah. And then two phases later, Hen- uh, Henderson makes that that break, that unbelievable break uh, through the middle. <laughs> but it all it all just came from just another poor kick from Scotland. And it kind of be, seemed to be the story of their day, that their kicking game was just inconsistent that it didn't have a, a kind of a plan to it like as you alluded to with Ireland there was definitely a plan to how they wanted to kick to Scotland yeah definitely uh, like I think our, uh, Scotland were focused on that Ireland back three and by even their first what three four possessions they did kick to try and test them and you mentioned the first one there where the first one Larmer gets off Russell it's just too long the, the high hanging kick and he has plenty of time to gather it and that little moment just gives a, a younger kind of fullbacker who's been talked about a lot in the in the build up. He it gives him that confidence, that belief, and and he goes away and, and plays from there and, and does some really brilliant stuff for Ireland. He looked really assured. Um, Conway, I know, dropped that one into touch, yeah, and that ended up giving Scotland their first bit of access into the game, really, because then they play that that left hand scrum, left hand side scrum move, and they, and they end up getting three points. So I know that was one that caught your eye. I remember looking up to you in the press box. Um, yeah, I'm thinking that looks a little bit familiar. Yeah, it, it was very similar to that left-hand scrum. I think that's been talked about in the in the England warm-up game where uh, the eight-nine. This time, Ireland defended better with uh, with Murray coming around to to defend Laidlaw on the open side, um, which allows Sexton to defend the short runner um, coming down his channel. But um, I, it's just the way Ireland are defending is really aggressive off the scrum. So Aki comes hard at Russell trying to shut down man and ball. Uh, doesn't quite get to him. And it leaves Ringrose really vulnerable. He's obviously got to respect Taylor on that, that short ball, um, which he does uh, and goes in with Taylor. Isn't, doesn't feel like he's in a position to be able to push off. Um, and now Stockdale yeah. has got an enormous distance to cover. Like I think if you freeze frame when Maitland gets the ball, 
and that on uh, Ireland's right-hand touchline. It's about 30 metres in from Ireland's right-hand touchline. Stockdale's obviously the open winger on the left-hand side. So to expect Stockdale to, to be able to jam that far in from his left touchline to, to stop man and ball, I think, is a huge ask. And I, I think the other kind of subtlety is if you look at the reverse, Conway sitting in behind the scrum, uh, but is a little bit late to kind of go and let release Lamore um, because obviously it's, if Stockdale's closing hard from the outside, Lamore is the next one to to close on um, Stuart Hogg. And I think Conway, if Ireland are going to defend like that and that hard out to in, then Conway's got to be able to release release the fifteen a little bit earlier. But yeah, Scotland have definitely have seen England do it and get some joy out of it. And uh, it was almost a carbon copy again, uh, but albeit with Conor Murray scrambling exceptionally well to shut it down on the left touchline. Yeah, himself and Johnny Sexton had a really good effort to get across there, but it's just really interesting to see that happening so soon after another instance. And then you kind of think, well, we don't get that many left, many left-hand side scrums. So teams are yeah. obviously using those eight nines really effectively um, just to, to cut them. I think in that instance, they came back in field and Ireland actually recovered pretty well and, and Sander gets into a good kind of jack position but Jack Cohen can't just uh, roll away and, and Scotland get three points out of that that was literally the, the only three points they had in this game though yeah. let's talk about Ireland's defence because you know that really backed up what we saw in the, the final warm-up game against Wales that's two really excellent defensive performance from Andy Farrell's charges in a row now and to keep Scotland troilous it is an achievement against a team who really backed themselves in attacking force what what in particular stood out about that defensive performance for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to highlight that, to credit to Andy Farrell's defence, Scotland averaged the most defenders beaten in the Six Nations uh, with averaging 29 a game. And they only managed eight in this game. So Ireland only missed eight tackles in 80 minutes of rugby, which I, I think is is a special achievement. I, I know we're, we're highlighting the kind of uh, the poor performance of Scotland, um, but they still have some massive game breakers in their back line. Um, so it was a credit to them. And I, I think, I'm not sure if you cap, it, it was captured on the kind of TV as well for you and Murray in the stand, but I thought Gary Ringrose, how he managed that edge defense, uh, being able to press hard yeah. and then being able, being able to jockey off when he needed to, not necessarily making a huge amount of tackles, but just from a system perspective. And especially when Ireland lost uh, Bundyaki quite early in the game, uh, and defending with Farrell, who who Ringrose hasn't had a huge amount of time in the saddle with, I just thought I thought Ringrose managed that kind of that wider channel that Scotland were trying to exploit really really well. I, I think his cover for that chip in the second half is his anticipation of the Finn Russell chip was exceptionally good, um, and I, I thought he was probably a kind of standout defender from a systematic perspective. Um, and then and then a guy like Gary, uh, sorry Jack Conan, who came on. I, I think he was a joint top tackler in the team. Um, I thought, just thought Ireland were super super efficient, super connection connected in their defensive line, and really bar bar on a couple of occasions where Scotland got around us on an edge. I thought Ireland looked kind of um, pretty bulletproof in D. Yeah, it looks really cohesive now in the last last two performances you mentioned it there Farrell coming on and, and blending really well with ring rows and those changes so often can disrupt and affect games and even when Schmidt emptied the bench it didn't really seem to to put Ireland off their stride defensively that kind of connection between players is, is really encouraging and, and there were so many big moments because of that you think mm -hmm. of ring rows chopping down Hogg as he looks for that outside break and and Bundyaki goes in and, and um, gets his second turnover I mean he was really impactful before he went off 
And as you yeah. mentioned, he, he's rushing up on that scrum play and he smashes his head off of Russell, trying to bring that aggression. But all those big moments in defence uh, were Irish ones. Really encouraging stuff from them. And, and I totally agree with you on Gary Ringrose. We spoke about it, I think, in our preview podcast where He's a guy who probably racks up missed tackle stats, but they're actually really good missed tackles to to put it to put it a little bit weirdly. But he's often making a really good defensive contribution, even if he doesn't fully finish out the tackle. He's often saving Ireland in a really tricky situation. So that's really encouraging because Ireland are definitely going to face a little bit more of a, a test defensively later on in the competition. They were also really efficient when they went forward, especially in those first 25 minutes. Essentially, the game's over when they score those three tries to their forwards. And I guess for, from a coach's point of view, that kind of efficiency must be just dreamland. Absolutely. And I, I think off the back of some really poor Scotland launches, um, which is kind of symptomatic of Scotland's attack in general. Like I think if you look at Scotland's first, second launch off a line, it was off. They tried to go wide off front ball. Um, and as you already mentioned, Gary Ringrose does exceptionally well to tackle Hogg. Uh, Bunyaki comes up with the turnover. And then from that turnover, Ireland goes to the 22 uh, off the penalty, uh, attempt to more, go through a couple of phases, get another penalty and uh, are able are able to go over on the mall. So Scotland were kind of giving Ireland those entry points. And again, off that, uh, that fourth line out from Scotland, they tried to actually replicate that left-hand side scrum play so exactly the same setup as we discussed off the scrum they play off the the right-hand side line out but unbelievably Seymour isn't even expecting the ball uh Finn Russell pulls the ball back to Seymour um and Seymour isn't even looking at the ball drops it Conway hacks through luckily gets that little Irish bit of luck hits the post and Ireland get that five meter scrum which uh Ireland are so clinical once they get into that 22 and and that exceptional carry off the back of the scrum from CJ Stander and a couple of phases later Ireland go over but it was just kind of symptomatic of Scotland's performance that Ireland didn't have to do a huge amount to gain territory into Scotland's 22 it was almost kind of handed to them on a plate by kind of Scotland's apathy off set piece and, and then once as we said Ireland got in there I think there were three three from three from their first three visits into the Scotland 22 coming away with tries and the game was all but over before half time yeah, just, just briefly jump back to that point where you're, you're talking about that line out there where Farrell goes and puts pressure on Russell. You mentioned Aki mm. off the scrum. Like, I, I often find myself watching that almost with my head my hands going, you're really taking a massive risk there. Is that something that, again, from like speaking from your analyst's point of view, that yeah. other teams will be looking at and saying, potentially we can exploit that? Yeah, I, th- I think the key one on the second one was it's it's a system that Ireland are, I think are going to continue with, and and Farrell didn't quite get to, to Russell. The key the key one in this situation was Ringrose. It wasn't as good a kind of running line from Taylor on the short ball, and Ringrose was able to adjust off. So even if they went out the back to Seymour, Ringrose is now in a position to defend Seymour and shut it down. Uh, but a lot hinges on the 13 there being able to make that read of being able to take the short ball and then being able to push push out off the back onto Seymour. So um, a lot of pressures on ring rows and obviously when Robbie Henshaw is in there as well. So um, it's a system that Farrell likes and I think they're going to continue continue to use, but it does come at risk. Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, the forward's really efficient in taking those opportunities from close range. It was a really good forward performance in general. The set piece obviously went well. They had 12 out of 12 wins on their own throw in the line out. I think two of those probably go down as very fortunate to to retain them. One was kind of thrown over the back and Van der Fleer has to 
burst out of that receiver position and regather the ball. The other one, I think it was Andrew Porter, who didn't quite expect mm-hmm. the line-out ball to him, yeah. but he, he recovers to, to take it in. That aside, I thought Ian Henderson called pretty well. They ended up throwing eight of their 12 to the front of the line-out. Often though, that was just sensible with the rain coming down. They were trying to maul a lot and getting success out of that. Uh, and then the movement on the ground was really good. I thought they cleverly beat the, the Scots along the ground and then got time in the air to, to complete those scrum-wise 10 out of 10 as well and obviously a, a big penalty that Conor Murray probably will uh, wish he had stuck over that penalty just so he'd have bragging rights in the change room I think <laughs> his play uh, and yeah. then they obviously shoved the, the Scots off the ball in, in the second half on their own feed that was just a, a really dominant scrum performance and, and line-out performance and generally the mall was excellent as well the carrying was good you mentioned Henderson's massive carry there but those Scottish forwards really must be feeling um, I guess almost slightly embarrassed at getting outplayed like that yeah, I think so. I, th- I think, and with the weather conditions that were predicted, I think that was Scotland's probably big Achilles heel going into the game was the dominance that Ireland would be able to apply to their set piece um, and their line. I, th- I think Ireland are in a really good position as the World Cup uh, develops. That they've, they've got a starting tight five that are are kind of world class, but the five that can come off the bench to cover them are are equally as good. Kilcoyne and um, our Porter are starting to build a really co- co- good combination there. With whether it's Scannell or Cronin in the in the middle of the two props, um, so I think I think Ireland uh, are building a huge depth there that's going to be able to apply pressure to kind of any set piece they, they come across. Yeah, absolutely. Um, loads of rugby discussed. Just before we move on from Ireland, just want to mention to anyone who maybe hasn't seen the news overnight, give a bit of an update. They're saying that Johnny Sexton took a bang on the thigh um, and he just had a bit of awareness is how, awareness is how they termed it, that he didn't want to continue place kicking. We did see him getting a bit of a, a kind of rub in his groin area, so that might be a, a more um, realistic viewpoint of what he's carrying. But I don't think they would have left him out until the 58th minute if it was a real concern. They also mm. updated us on Bondiaki and Peter O'Mahony, who both failed their HI, HI1s during the game, but passed their HI2s and were due this afternoon to have HI3s and actually, if they pass those, they were going to be back uh, available for full training by tomorrow. So that's sooner certainly than anticipated. We haven't got an update on those HI3s, but it looks like they could potentially be back in line. You wonder, though, will Joe Schmidt risk anyone this weekend, considering he's now in a really strong position? And like essentially, you're almost looking forward to that, that quarterfinal against South Africa already at this stage. They're in a really strong position. And we'll probably talk more about selection later on this week. But speaking of the box... That game on Saturday night, New Zealand against the box, that was massively billed as a as a as an epic and really it, it delivered. It was so entertaining. Lots of brilliant rugby, New Zealand running out twenty three, thirteen winners. What was your impression of that one? Yeah, it, it certainly did deliver. And I think um the prelude of the rugby championship, I think, was a little bit of a phony war, particularly from from New Zealand's perspective. I, I thought their their kicking game in in the rugby championship against South Africa was unusual that they they didn't kick from nine once, and then they're obviously holding a little bit back in reserve for the World Cup, where at the weekend they kicked 15 times off nine uh, between Aaron Smith and Perinara. So they changed tactically changed the game massively from the rugby championship, and actually kicked more than South Africa did um, in the entire game, 29 kicks to 23, which I don't think anyone would have predicted going into the game. So I, th- I think New Zealand adjusted their tactics, and um, their two tries came from Aaron Smith box kicks, uh, one, one from a a bridge 
bridge catch off the box kick and um i think you've discussed in your article really well the kind of uh, the sheer brilliance of that try whether it was the the shift uh out wide um aaron smith's positive support line um reese's brilliant feet um and then the finish from uh from bridge off a bar um, offload but um yeah it was just an exceptional game and it was just interesting to see the kind of uh, change in strategy from new zealand um that uh, developed from the rugby championship. Yeah, those those few minutes watching it live was was really <laughs> like breathtaking almost because you you go through twenty minutes and the box are really smothering them with that unbelievably aggressive defence. They're really in control physically. They look to be getting the edge. Pollard kicks an early penalty and they're three nil up, and then he misses that really straightforward penalty to go six nil up, and mm. you're kind of thinking, well, they haven't got much return on on that spell of dominance and that's really a lesson for everyone who's going to play the All Blacks is that if you get into those zones you really have to come away with scores because we see I, I, I don't want to call it the relative ease they score at but how quickly they can turn your error into or your failure to maybe feel the box kick into two tries it was just breathtaking I think they could add a third really with that first one where Mwanga um, hacks the ball through and Mapimpi I think sticks out the hand and just prevents yeah. him from throwing what could be potentially a scoring pass. I know Kieran Reid was asking for that yellow card, um, but that that would have been an even bigger lead. But the the way they took those two tries was was just superb. The way they pick out the mismatches, even for the second one, Dane Coles, you don't see too many hookers throwing that basketball pass over the top to to the centre after a bit of footwork, and then he's so good at picking out the two the two tight forwards beside each other and. and and going through that hole and there's always a support line even even if it's a second row like Scott Barrett what a line yeah, it takes and, absolutely. and that's just going to underline how mobile I guess this New Zealand team is like the box are bigger in the pack but I don't think anyone matches the All Blacks for that intelligence and that mobility um, and it's a really interesting blend they have now what did you make of how they went particularly given those changes like Ardi Savea has recently gone six but again he was dominant it feels like the changes that Hansen has made are working out largely yeah, I think so. And the kind of profile of the game style that I, I thought we would see New Zealand continue with with the two playmakers of Moanga and Barrett was very evident. Um, I think I think Barrett was um, outside of the nines was New Zealand's second most passing back at 15. Uh, he, he's their prime playmaker even from 15 with 14 passes. But I, I think the the contrast we spoke about in the rugby championship, the contrast between the two teams is just stark, really. Um, like New Zealand forwards pass the ball 19 times in the game and offloaded eight times compared to South Africa's 10 passes and two offloads. So the ball movement of New Zealand's forwards is exceptionally good. And I, I think the stat is going to be critical looking ahead to that quarterfinal against the Springboks for Ireland is the lack of ball movement from the forwards one, but, but also from their backs. Um, I think a, a huge stat from the game was outside of uh, South Africa's nine and 10, uh, LaRue, the 15 was South Africa's most passing back with 16. He's, he's a cru- crucial playmaker for South Africa and actually had more passes than uh, Pollard at 10. So he's kind of given that free license to roam around, but crucially, the rest of the South African backline, including the subs, only passed six times in the entire game. So for Andy Farrell and his defence, and and for Joe Schmidt, kind of understanding that profile of how South Africa are going to play and who their key players are, and it's in stark contrast to New Zealand, who's 
uh, the rest of New Zealand's back line combined for 25 passes, which is almost four times as much as South Africa. So it's just a stark contrast in playing style. And, and New Zealand, with the profile of their backs that we discussed last week's, are hell-bent on ball movement, high skill level, and moving moving those bigger, uh, oppressive defences around. And I, and I thought they did a good job. Yeah, absolutely. The, the South Africa formula is sure Razzy Erasmus really is, and he's building he's built it on the defensive foundation, really solid set piece. I think they were frustrated that they couldn't get their mall going, and I know they were frustrated with some of the non decisions around that from the referee Razzy Erasmus. There's no <laughs> there's no better coach of coming in with a smiling face and like absolutely lambasting the referee without directly doing it. He he repeatedly talked about how how good the New Zealand discipline was, how that was a difference. And that's him saying, like, referee, you you absolutely yeah. um, did us over here. They, they, the All Blacks only gave away four penalties. I tweeted out as a sarcastic tweet after the game, the All Blacks only gave away four penalties. Incredible discipline, they, you know, <laughs> taking the piss. And people got very, very worked up on Twitter. <laughs> I, I think I should need to put a sarcasm hashtag next time. But uh, it, was, it was a little bit unbelievable. Yes, yeah, sorry, Go ahead. Yeah, it was a little bit unbelievable. Was that was that your impression of it? Yeah, particularly at the breakdown. Like, if you look at those two breakdown penalties that New Zealand won, I think the first one, um, it's Scott Barrett is the arriving player, but he clearly has hands past the ball on the ground, uh, which is which is really frustrating for South Africa because you just want some consistency there from the referee. And then that second one in the second half off the line out, I think Sonny Bill makes a tackle and clearly reloads South Africa's side of the breakdown, which which allows Artie Sevilla that kind of split second to get on the ball. And, and Garces um, ignores Sonny Bill and, and rewards Seville with the turnover. And that inconsistency in those kind of tight games uh, is frustrating for coaches. And and I guess across the competition, you just want to see a bit of consistency there from the referees. But New Zealand, New Zealand's are the masters at the breakdown there. Yeah, definitely. Razzie's pre-match chat about hopefully getting a fair crack of the whip maybe didn't work out too well. More positively, I guess, from New Zealand, New Zealand's point of view, the, the two wings, you, you mentioned Reese's footwork there and you mentioned Bridge going back and getting the ball, but again, they're relatively inexperienced and a guy like Rico Ioanni, who to be fair, has really fallen out of form. It's been a, mm-hmm. a, a strange kind of year for him, but those two really fully justified Hansen's fate and and really, they looked to have made New Zealand an even better team, particularly George. I know Reese is the excitement machine, but Bridge is just brilliant. He's a great defender as well. They seem to be great finds for New Zealand. What do you what do you reckon? Yeah, Bridge was probably the the form back for Crusaders in Super Rugby. He had a really really good campaign. I think he he is really solid under the high ball, uh, exceptionally quick, and probably gives New Zealand a little bit more solidity back there than Rika Ioni. I think Ioni struggles under the high ball at times, and inconsistently in defence, kind of can, can jam in and make poor reads, uh, devastating with the ball in hand, but mm. can kind of float in and out of game. So I think prof- uh, the profile we've talked about in that New Zealand back line, I think Bridge fits in really well, and and obviously Reese is just electric pace, just out and out top level pace, and and knows his way to a try line. So they've got a, they've got a good combination between the two of them. Yeah, definitely. That New Zealand churn of wings continues. It's just crazy. They seem to disappear after the age of 25, 26. Sometimes after having explosive starts to their careers, you think of Julian Savea kind of in a similar boat as well. But when you've got that much talent coming through, it's it's pretty useful. The last thing I want to just focus in on from this game is was in the South Africa defence. We, we mentioned how aggressive it was there. Even you think of that incredible George Bridge try when they turned the ball over in the air 
and they still go up high on the edge and and Moanga mm. um, chips out or crossfield kicks over the top of Mapimpi. Do you think like obviously New Zealand are the most skillful team in the world? Do you think there's other, there are other teams, let's say Ireland, for example, who have the ability to exploit that space because it really is there out in those five meter channels when when Jack Nienaber has his wings up so high. Yeah, and it'll be an intriguing selection because what jumps to my mind straight away is if Ireland are playing South Africa in a quarterfinal is Joey Carberry. I think he, he's got an exceptional mm-hmm. attacking kicking game as well. And and that in tandem with a Johnny Sexton potentially to try and kind of unlock that South African defence could be a possibility. Um, because, as we said, Mpimpi and Kobe, while Kobe is good in the air, uh, the system of South Africa to, to jam hard from the out to in um, leaves them extremely vulnerable. So having that attacking, kicking game, whether it's through Sexton or a second playmaker, whoever that might be, um, I think is going to be crucial um, going, going into the to the quarterfinal. But yeah, New Zealand exploited it really well with Moanga uh, for that second try. Uh, just just exceptional touch to get over the top. Maybe over quick kicked it slightly, but um, still exposes space for um, Reese to, to run into. Yeah, absolutely. Geez, that's an exciting thought. Joey Carberry picking apart the, uh, the, old, uh, the <laughs> yeah. box defence, rather. We have loads of time to look forward to that because it looks like both are on a procession, I guess, through Pool A and Pool B. It's a bit of a shame in that way, although we do have the Scotland-Japan game on the last day of of the, the pool A, so that's one to really look forward to. Obviously, Ireland are going to face Japan this weekend, and we'll, we'll preview that later in the week. But the other match I wanted to, to turn to now was Australia's win over Fiji. 39-21 makes for pretty good reading in terms of a result, but Australia really um, left themselves in a tricky position in this one. Yeah, they did. Uh, I think when... Um... Fiji went in for that second try just after half time uh, and kind of got out to a commanding lead that uh, there definitely would have been some some nervous Australians in the coaching box and in the stands. But um, we, we kind of flagged it earlier on that Fiji have got some exceptional players in their team um, and are kind of are, are kind of with the investment of world rugby are developing into a kind of pushing towards being a tier one nation. So it didn't really come as any surprise that they would they would cause Australia um, some headaches. But uh, I thought Australia were probably a little bit loose in that first half and, and almost played into into Fiji's hands with a kind of looseness. I think back to that, that Pocock quick throw five metres from the line that uh, Fiji snuffled out and, and came away with a, with a five-metre scrum. I just think um, the one team you don't want to play loose and frenetic against is, is Fiji. But, but I, I think... I think the Wallabies, in the way they're trying to, it's actually quite interesting how the Wallabies are attacking. It's very different to probably Australia, South Africa, Ireland. They're trying to play a very unstructured brand of rugby with a, with a low uh, kicking volume. I think they only kicked seven times tactically in the entire game. So their their premium is on ball retention, speed of ball and ball movement. But um against Fiji, especially in that first 40, I think it's about managing field position, uh, making them get into a set-piece game. And and eventually in that second half, when Australia got them into a set-piece game and utilised utilized their rolling wall to come up with a couple of tries, I think that really kind of took the energy away from Fiji and Australia kind of went on to dominate field position and territory and, and possession. And, and Fiji kind of, kind of ran out of steam late in that second half. Yeah, absolutely. And that that sounds it's a really good victory for, for the Wildies. People would kind of talk down their performance, but they did mm. come through a really tricky challenge and figure out the right way to play. And sometimes you had wondered in the past, maybe did they have that tactical 
decision making maturity but it seems that they have more of that now and, and probably as a result of some of the changes that Czech has made in the team and certainly in some key positions I know Wilgeny made a pretty good impact to be fair off the bench but you look at even even a guy like James O'Connor in the midfield who's kind of a facilitator now and his handling kind of maybe being missed out in some of the, the kind of highlight reels but he's been a really important figure in the middle of it and, and also I know you mentioned the set piece strikes to us in the in the preview. There was a particularly nice one there for the yeah. Corabetti try. You must have enjoyed that one. Yeah, off the five man, which as you said was probably James O'Connor was the pivotal guy in that. I think it was uh, a really good play, just uh, straight off Tamua to um, Hooper, who kind of played a little link ball out the back to O'Connor, and and O'Connor just drifts nicely uh, from the right hand side and then squares up the Fijian defence. And just throws a perfect kind of miss ball to uh, Dane Halepetti, and if it doesn't land right in the bread basket, I think I think Dane Halepetti isn't getting that ball away to to Marika down the left edge. But the pass is just on the money, and and Dane just takes and gives in one movement to Marika, and then uh, poor old uh, Ganeva. I think he's about 35 now. He, he he's going to have a hard time stopping. Uh, Marika Carabetti um, and Marika just finished it off really well. So, but it was a, a good sign. And as you said, James O'Connor, I think he he made Hodges try in that first half with a nice pass left to right. Um, so it, the subtlety of his running lines and being able to square up defences, I think, is is a is a key in Australia's attack going forward. And it forms a nice kind of partnership with the kind of uh, the aggression and the punch that um, Karevi gives him in midfield. Yeah, I would say there were some sore Australian bodies in the day after this game. Tuisova and Radradra did a bit of damage at Pesaliato, obviously, before he went off. Um, yeah. Listen, there's so much rugby in this. I don't want to dwell too much on the refereeing decisions, but we got to mention, obviously, Reese Hodge. He, he's been cited yeah. for that challenge. Were you as surprised as everyone that it took a while for them to get there, especially considering the, the officials actually did have a check of it during the game? They had the check, yeah, and obviously they're hypervigilant around any contact to the head, and it's hard because you see it at different angles. One angle you can see Rizaj clearly trying to wrap his his right arm uh, around Yatu, um, but it looks like as Yatu is dipping into contact, Hodge's Hodge's shoulder comes in contact with his head. So, but there's a mitigating circumstances there. I, I don't know, but I, I think there's um, there's a hearing due for Wednesday where Hodge will find out his fate. But um, obviously. It was a key moment in the game because Fiji, Yatu was probably Fiji's most impressive player in that opening 20, 25 minutes. And for, for them to lose him for the remainder of the game was was a key blow to them. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like, what's your take on it? I thought in that England-Tonga uh, game last night, I thought the, um, the officials managed it really well when Watson kind of fell into that to that absolutely enormous tackle uh, from the Tonga player. But I thought common sense kind of prevailed yeah. there. But yeah. Um, yeah, what was your take on it? Yeah, I, I really think he, I think there's a ban coming Hodge's way. Um, a definite card for me and probably a red realistically based on what I've seen in the game over the last months and year. Um, I think there's direct contact there. And I and while I do think Hodge gets his right hand up, I think the initial contact, his arm is kind of straight down and, and the, the shoulder makes the contact at that point and then he kind of swings the arm up. Um, yeah. I just based on what we've seen from other cases, I, I would be I would imagine a ban. They may reduce that down with a good record. I think his record's pretty clean, and maybe a three week instead of that six week entry point, and he may feature again if they get in into knockout stages. But yeah, it did obviously have a, an effect on the game, and Fiji must be frustrated. I know Czech has come out and criticised them, which um, will kind of distract a little bit, and he's going to put a bit of pressure on the disciplinary committee already, saying you know they told us what what 
what is a, a ban and what's not. So we wait to see what happens there. There was obviously a yellow card as well that people were pretty frustrated by uh, from Ben O'Keefe for, for Boccia, the, the Fiji 12. What did you make of that one? Because that was, in fairness, a lot of advantages building up in a row, but the, the final one seemed to frustrate people. Yeah, I think so. It's unfortunate for Boccia that Fiji ran a team warning, but I think it's I think he's just gotten the wrong guy there. And there's been a bit of frustration in the World Cup to date around these um the side cleans, uh, especially at attacking breakdowns, um, cleaners just arriving in and cleaning out illegally from the side. But I think it's important to be aware of, of the referee's checklist and what, what he's looking for at a breakdown and his kind of uh, his order of priorities. So in any in any tackle situation, the first guy the referee is going to look for is a tackler. Uh, so does a tackler uh, release, does a tackler roll away and clear the breakdown. So that's his, the the first objective. Uh, second guy he's looking at is the um, whether it's an assist tackler uh, who's a part of the tackle. And if he is an assist tackler, does he make a clear release before attempting to get into a jackal position? Or if he's not the assist tackler and he's the arriving player for defence, is he supporting his body weight and does he come through the gate? So they're the first two things the referee's looking at. And then third and final thing is he'll look at is, is the arriving player from an attack perspective. Uh, so in this situation, Hooper clearly arrives in from the side to clear out Boccia. And for mine, Boccia was in a really good position and no breakdown had formed. Uh, Boccia was over the ball. But critically, the Fijian player... Uh, the tackler, so the number one guy the referee should have been looking at, yeah. didn't roll away. Didn't roll away. Uh, he causes Hooper to change his line to the breakdown and come in from the side to clear Boccia, who's over the ball. So for me, it's a kind of mistaken identity, and, and the yellow card should have gone to the Fijian tackler and not to Boccia. But um, yeah, there has been a lack of consistency there from the referees. But I do feel for the referees, they've got so much to look at it in what is a, a really fast-paced, dynamic uh, breakdown. Yeah, and we're never about bagging referees on here. We know how hard the yeah. job is. That's a really interesting point you make about that player on the ground because there's obviously been discussion around Hamish Watson, Watson's horrific injury. We really feel for him. He's, he's out of the World Cup. It was a really nasty one. You could hear him screaming on the ref, Mike. Yeah. And in that instance, Healy does end up driving to the left, but you, you look at that tackler on the ground in front of the tackle, and to be fair, we know teams are brilliant at getting in the way and trying to block up that channel and oftentimes referees are happy enough for the first arriving player to come a slightly at an angle to uh, get get around that tackler who's lying in front of the ball that's often why you're getting that side entry so it's a kind of cause and effect thing that was a, a really tough one for Hamish Watson we've seen a lot of clears like that though I don't, and I don't like the, the, the injury obviously makes it more w- worthy of investigating and, and yes Healy is probably slightly from the side but based on that tackler being in front of the ruck, that's what ends up happening. And I think Furlong, people are talking about a tucked arm, but he gets a little bit of a rap, I think, with, with his right. And if players are over that ball as well, like jackling, there's only one way to clear them off, and it's, it's with a, a really strong shoulder to them. And that's, uh, I guess, a reality game. The other refereeing thing, just briefly to pick up on, we saw a lot of mole tries uh, in this first weekend, which we hadn't really seen at the top levels of the game, I remember talking to Peter Manu recently, he was talking about it getting very difficult to score more tries. Everyone's getting so good at defending them. Now, obviously, we're seeing tier two sides maybe concede a few, although France and Scotland <laughs> don't yeah. quite belong in that category. But it was interesting to see how maybe teams have held back a, a little couple of plays. And obviously, it's very, very difficult to referee like to the letter of the law with a mall because so much is happening at the same time. You look at the Ireland one where essentially Ryan and Sander leave the line out, go into the five-meter channel, potentially join just ahead of the ball. You look at the Tolu Lashu one, the first one where 
Arnold and Rada probably slide up in front of him and join them all just ahead of him as they surge over the line. And then Argentina's first try is they obviously had the mall and it was a vital part of their comeback. You look at Petty's try and it's actually Lavanini coming from the front of the line out. He steps up in front of the ball as well and guides Petty through. So really minor, subtle details that are incredibly difficult for referees to pick up. But I yeah. guess that's what professional referees are, are good at. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd, I think even critically, uh, another component, because I guess the front part of your mall is, is so critical and, and the role of the lifter, both the back lifter and the front lifter, um, double banking was something that was refereed heavily probably 18 months ago where they wanted to give the defensive team clear access to the jumper. Um, and now that, that's not necessarily happening where you're seeing uh, the lifter banking in behind the jumper to kind of create that solid kind of arrowhead at the front and then building your mall off that. So um, that's something that seems to have come back into the game and isn't being refereed, which is probably an inconsistency. Uh, but again, if you check, if you, I've talked to referees about it before, their checklist at a mall, um, there's about five things come before they even look at the lift, the lifters at the kind of at the front of the mall. So another impossible job, and and I think teams are just gonna, especially with the level of analysis done now, teams are gonna uh, take whatever whatever they can get uh, and take advantage of opposition defenses. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to briefly run through the other games you mentioned. France Argentina, they're incredibly entertaining game. Obviously coming down to the, the very wire and. Let's not discuss the referee in there. We've kind of gone through it, but I know people were frustrated with some of the decision-making consistency. Just on that France first half, though, on, I mean, they threw 13 offloads, I think, overall, the highest of any team, and especially the back line. They look like they're, when they click, obviously they switch off in the second half, but when they click, they are a real threat to anyone. Absolutely. And I, I think when you're talking about the breakdown, because breakdowns are becoming so hard to resource now because guys are so so strong over the ball the offload is something that is definitely coming back into fashion and that ball movement that you're seeing from France is deconstructing defences because if you're not setting breakdowns uh, you're not giving the defensive line something to set to um, so the offloading contact off the ground uh, is really refreshing to see. And I think that second DuPont try is up for try this season already. I thought the build-up to that try and, and the number of offloads and a guy like Raraka as well is just has been phenomenal for France. And, yeah, it was exceptional to see. It's kind of the France of, France of all coming back. And they've kind of slid in under the radar, haven't they? Not, not many people have been talking about yeah. France being genuine World Cup contenders. But... After a first-half performance that they gave, um, people kind of sitting up and taking notice of them. Yeah, and Damien Penna was going to be the, the poster boy. He's just brilliantly, classically mm. French. He's so nonchalant. He looks like nothing is a, an effort for him. And he just looks like he just turns up, plays the match, doesn't really train all that often, has a glass of red with his, uh, his lunch before the match. He's just loving, loving being out there. It's a, it's a joy to watch. And even, it was a bit of tactical cleverness to it as well. You, you saw Vakatawa come back down that short side for that beautiful pass to offloading you mentioned, just overloading it. They did that really well. You mentioned England a little bit earlier on, not the most impressive performance, but they get there with a bonus point in the end. And, and again, probably underlined with the guys like Tuilagi and Mara Toja that, Toja that they're going to be physically very hard to stop. I know Eddie Jones is already pissing people off over here by saying that USA are going to start 15 Donald Trump, so I'm not sure he's winning any fans with wow. that kind of comments, but they'll get better. They'll get better, you would yeah. imagine. And I, I think 
I haven't been to support down before, but if it's anything like the Millennium Stadium, the um, humidity that's created in an indoor stadium, I think, has to be legislated for the amount of handling errors that England had, um, which uh, was surprising. But, yeah, I just think the grease that gets on the ball in those indoor venues caused kind of a huge amount of handling errors, which kind of prevented them from gaining momentum into the game. But, yeah, I think they're only going to improve as, as the competition develops. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll discuss them more as it does. So last or the first game rather of the weekend was with the hosts opening up with a 30-10 win over Russia. I went to the game. It was a really brilliant occasion for Japanese rugby and the support was absolutely incredible. Wasn't too impressed with the Japanese performance. Obviously major nerves for them and I think they were pretty honest about that afterwards. But I guess just to, to finish this up on that's what Ireland are now preparing for. They have a six day turnaround compared to Japan's eight day turnaround. But what did you see in that Japan performance that Joe Schmidt might be picking out as threats and as weaknesses? Yeah, I, I, I think the profile of their team is going to be very similar to what I think they expected off Scotland and, and that kind of high-energy, fast-paced game. I, I think if you look at the stats, it, while the scoreboard probably doesn't reflect it, they have 48 defenders beaten in the game. Um, so they've got guys with electric feet uh, that can kind of... Um, cause teams difficulty so I think being able to shut down their space not give them time on the ball and kind of have that fast kind of offloading game but I think on the flip side I think they came up with 24, 21 turnovers uh, which is extremely high and probably reflects maybe the nervousness they had going into the game but also kind of reflects that kind of high risk style of play that that they will play and, and off those turnovers it'll be interesting to see how, how Ireland will look to exploit them whether it's through a running game or a kicking game yeah, absolutely. Loads to look forward to there. Shout out for Russia as well. It was interesting to go into the post-match press conference and for their captain, Vaz Artemyev, to come in and still have a South Dublin accent with a tinge of Russian. <laughs> so enjoyed hearing that. You feel for them, they have to play on Tuesday again against Samoa. That's going to be incredibly tough to, to get up for physically even. Um, and obviously Wales are playing Georgia tonight just after we come off this call. So we'll discuss that a little bit more later on in the week. But thanks, Marino, for joining us. What's your plan for the next few days? Obviously, we kind of have to wait until next weekend for for the really strong fixtures to to get going again. But what's your what's your plan for next while? Yeah, take a few days, have a look around Tokyo. Um, got a few friends in town, a few family. I think half of Ireland have travelled over. I, I think I haven't but noticed the amount of Irish people in around uh, Shibuya and Shinjuku. It just seems to be a kind of sea of green wherever you go. So there's plenty of Irish in town and. And plenty of people to catch up with. And then, yeah, looking forward to heading down to... Uh, I'll probably head down on uh, on game day to watch to watch Ireland and Japan. So uh, looking forward to that and, and uh, getting to see a bit more of Japan. Brilliant. Really appreciate your insight as always. And I'll catch you down in Shizuoka. Enjoy your couple of days in Tokyo and, and chat soon. Cheers, Murray. So thanks as always to Mary Kinsella and to Owen Toulon for joining us as well. This podcast was brought to you by Volkswagen, a proud sponsor of Irish Rugby. We will be back every single day this week, no joke, with podcasts uh, every morning. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular one and then the 42 members can enjoy uh, a few extra ones thrown in there for good measure. So we'll catch you in the morning if you're a member. Um, Members.the42.ie if you're not and if you fancy getting involved. And if you don't fancy getting involved, we'll catch you on Thursday morning anyway. So until then, take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs>
Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Let him reverse pass. Oh! Oh! 